0: Name of God, Father, Son and
1: Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Living right next door to the cathedral, I hear more about what's going on in this congregation than perhaps any other congregation in the diocese. And let me tell you, it's all good. It's all good. And that wouldn't be happening, of course, without some great leadership. And I want you to embarrass uh, your dean this morning and his clergy team and give him a big hand of applause for all the good work that he does for you. Now, if you have ever attended a big sporting event or like to watch uh, football or baseball on television, you will notice that as the camera pans through the audience, there's always somebody holding up a sign that looks like this. (laughs) Can you see that, choir? Got that back there? Okay. John 3.16. Well, that person in their own way is preaching the gospel. Since there is probably no verse in the entire Bible that sums up the good news as simply as this in John 3.16. If you're going to memorize only one verse from the Bible, this ought to be the one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that all that believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life." We often toss around that word gospel, meaning good news, without really understanding what it means. I will often ask confirmation classes in the churches that I visit, what is the gospel? What is the good news? I'm usually met with blank stares. Some will take a stab at answering and say something like, it's the golden rule, or Jesus saves, or cleanliness is next to godliness. (laughs) But even frequent churchgoers are stumped when it comes to giving a quick definition of the gospel. The fact that our that we often talk about the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, adds to the confusion. Are we talking about the gospel of John, or are we talking about the gospel? This morning on Trinity Sunday, we hear this good news come at the end of a story about an encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, a religious leader in Jerusalem who came to visit Jesus one night and ended up getting a theology lesson. This passage is usually read on Trinity Sunday because it's one of the few places in the New Testament where the persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all are mentioned in the same reading. It's a very familiar passage, therefore, to most of us, but allow me to share with you a modern and slightly quirky retelling of this story by the novelist Frederick Beekner. Nicodemus had heard enough about what Jesus was up to in Jerusalem to make him think that he ought to pay him a visit and find out more. On the other hand, as a VIP with a big theological reputation to uphold, he decided it would be just as well to pay that visit at night. Better to be at least fairly safe than to be sorry, he thought. So he waited until he thought his neighbors were all asleep. So Nicodemus was fairly safe, and at least at the start of their nocturnal interview, Jesus was fairly patient. What the whole thing boiled down to, Jesus told him, was that unless you got born again, you might as well give up. Well, that was all very well, Nicodemus said, but how are you supposed to pull off a thing like that? How especially were you supposed to pull it off if you were pushing 65? How did you get born again when it was a challenge just to get out of bed in the morning? He even got a little sarcastic. Could one enter a second time into their mother's womb, he asked, when it was all one could do to enter a taxi without the drivers coming around to give him a shove from behind. A gust of wind happened to whistle down the chimney at that point, making the dying embers burst into flame. And Jesus said, being born again was like that. It wasn't something you did. The wind did it. The Spirit did it. It was something that happened for God's sake. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. And that's when Jesus really got going. Maybe Nicodemus had six honorary doctorates and half a column in who's who, Jesus said. But if he couldn't see something as plain as the nose on his face, he better go back to kindergarten. Jesus said, I'm telling you, God is so in love with this world that he sent me down. So if you don't believe your own eyes, then maybe you'll believe mine. Maybe you'll believe me. Maybe you won't come sneaking around half scared to death in the dark anymore. But you'll come too, come clean, come alive. What impressed Nicodemus even more than the speech was the quickening of his own breath and the pounding of his own heart. He hadn't felt like that since his first kiss, since the time his first child was born. Later on, when Jesus was dead, he went along with Joseph of Arimathea to pay his last respects at the tomb in broad daylight It was a crazy thing to do, what with the witch hunt that was going on, but he decided it was worth it. When he heard the next day that some of the disciples had seen Jesus alive again, he wept like a newborn child. I think that it is important that we hear the story of Nicodemus first, before we come to Jesus famous words about believing in him. It reminds us that belief is not an abstract concept, but it is a way of living and loving by following the example of Jesus. Now, there are some Christian churches that turn these words at John 3.16 into a kind of test for who is going to get into heaven and who is not. If you don't believe in Jesus, that is, intellectually accept him as your personal Lord and Savior, as the formula goes, then there's no hope for you or for the majority of human beings who were never Christians. For these churches, the good news is about who's in and who's out, and it's only good news for a select few. They seem to overlook Jesus' words in the very next verse when he says, I have come to save the world, not to condemn it. Nicodemus was not converted by an intellectual concept. He was converted by his conversation with a person, with Jesus Christ. We can't talk about the gospel unless we first experience the gospel. As the old saying goes, religion begins with a lump in the throat. Over 1700 years, there have been many attempts to explain the doctrine of the Trinity. When we read most of them, we sort of end up shaking our heads. Thomas Jefferson, for example, had great disdain for the doctrine of the Trinity. He said, No man ever had a distinct idea of the Trinity. It's mere abracadabra of the Montybanks calling themselves the priests of Jesus. By focusing on the philosophical arguments, people like Jefferson miss the point. What Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus, and what we need to hear again and again, is that belief in God is all about relationship. Now, it's always hard to talk about relationship, And God's relationship with a different aspect of God's own self is even harder. But we can make a start. Richard Rohr says, The Christian belief in the Trinity makes it clear that God is an event of communion. God is not a noun as much as a verb. We've always thought of God as an autonomous, supreme being rather than of being itself as an energy that moves within itself as Father, beyond itself as Christ, and drawing us into itself in the Holy Spirit. When Christianity begins to take this pivotal and central doctrine of the Trinity with practical seriousness, it will be renewed at every level. Another theologian puts it this way, All of creation is a perfect giving and a perfect receiving between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit with no withholding and no rejecting. The doctrine of the Trinity means that relationship, that fellowship, that togetherness and sharing, that self-giving and other-centeredness are not afterthoughts with God, but the deepest truth about the being of God. The Father is not consumed within himself. He loves the Son and the Spirit. And the Son is not riddled with narcissism. He loves his Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit is not preoccupied with himself and his own glory. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. Giving, not taking, other-centeredness, not self-centeredness, sharing and not hoarding are what fire the rockets of God and lie at the very center of God's existence as Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, if you don't get all of this, don't worry about it. Writer Anne Lamott at one point throws up her hands and rightly says, I don't need to understand the hypostatic union of the Trinity. I just need to turn my life over to whoever came up with the redwood tree. This gospel passage, though, is all about relationship, and it's all about change of heart. Now, remember, Nicodemus came to see Jesus at night, at nighttime, full of questions. He became a believer, and his life was changed. And the next time we hear about him in in John's gospel is at Jesus' trial and crucifixion. And he not only speaks out in defense of Jesus, but he does so boldly, And bravely in the daytime. The way we understand God makes a difference, not only in how we think, but how we live. If God is a Trinity, then God is a God of relationship. He's in relationship with himself, flowing between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We enter into that relationship through our prayer as we experience God in creation in his saving love for us in Jesus Christ, and in his continuing presence with us in his Holy Spirit. But we're also called into relationship with others. God values relationships, whether those are relationships we have with our own members of our family, with the people across the street, or the people around the world. In these relationships, we experience the triune God. So the good news is more than just a sign to hold up at a baseball game. The gospel is the relationship that God offers us in his only son, that we might not perish, but live forever, ever in love. That's a message that's worth living. And that's a message worth sharing. So what's that verse again, everybody? John 3.16. You got it right, touchdown.